Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, let's begin with the word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. And Brent or somebody, could you do me a favor and close that door? Because it's going to get loud when they start jumping around in there. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have tonight to look at your word. You are a glorious God. You're powerful. You're wonderful. We can never begin to fully understand all that you are, but you've chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. And so... We come tonight to submit under your word. We don't want to stand in an authority over your word, but we want to be under your word. So help us to learn and help us to have fun doing it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John 17. John 17. And tonight is an introduction. I've titled this series this fall, Worshiping the God Who Is, dot, dot, dot. And we're going to look at a different attribute of God each Wednesday night. Maybe some Wednesday nights we'll do more than one. Um, But tonight's more of an introduction, kind of introducing this topic. But in John chapter 17... We have Jesus' high priestly prayer where he is going before his father and he's praying to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before he is to be arrested and betrayed by Judas. And so let's read the prayer of Jesus in John 17 verses 1 through 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is the key verse right here. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So how does Jesus define eternal life there in verse 3? He says, if you want to get down to the substance of what eternal life is, it is that you know God, the Father, and you know his Son, Jesus, and by extension, you know the Holy Spirit. So knowing who God is is a matter of eternal life. And I'm going to quote some old dead guys tonight because they're a lot smarter than, than I am. And so I've got a good Spurgeon quote here. This is from Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> he said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage a child of God is the name, nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. 
Okay. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is to be humbled by our great God and to have our minds expanded to who this great God is. We're going to attempt to know God more fully. But before we do that, what is the problem of our age? Remember last year in January, I, taught, I did um, that series on progressive Christianity and all of the liberal things that are happening in evangelicalism, of people denying key biblical truths. So we live in a culture like a secular culture that does not know God. Would you agree they don't know God? They don't worship God? They don't obey God? They don't know anything about God, just the world out there. Okay. Now, we can't blame the world because they're lost, they're unsaved, they're unregenerated, their eyes are blinded. We don't excuse their behavior, but we don't expect non-Christians to know who God is or want to know who God is. Let's take it a step further. We live in an evangelical church culture of professing Christians that thinks it knows God, worships God, obeys God. But I'm going to ask you a question. You can disagree with me all you want. It's okay to disagree with the pastor. Are we living in an age of great biblical understanding or very little biblical understanding? Who says we're at an age of great biblical understanding? Anybody want to raise their hand? Who says we're living in an age of little biblical understanding? Okay. Among believers, right? So we, so-called believers. So I'm not going to pick on the world because they don't know. What I'm going to say tonight is that believers, we as believers who profess the name of Christ, we need to know who God is. And let me just say this. You might not like the God who is once you get to know him fully. But, I mean, not like him, but there may be some things about it that rub you the wrong way. But if we're going to submit to scriptures, we need to know who the God of the Bible is. Now, Hosea chapter 4. Listen to this. This is very interesting. This comes from Hosea, the prophet, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel. And he's especially calling out the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets. Okay, let's just stop before I read this. Who were the priests? The priests were the men that were set apart by God, consecrated to do what? Teach the people the word of God. As a matter of fact, the priests were to go into each town and teach. They were like the local pastor. Who were the prophets? The prophets were to proclaim the word of God. Okay, so these are the religious leaders of the day. Now listen to what Hosea says. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns. 
And all who dwell in it languish, and the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let no one accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your Lord, your God, I will also forget your children. Okay. Who is Hosea addressing? Israel. God's people. Who are in the land. And what he's saying here in verse 1, he lays three charges at them. He says, there is no faithfulness in the land. Literally, if you go back and look at the original Hebrew, that means integrity. There's no integrity. People aren't living lives of integrity. They're not being faithful. This is God's people. He's not talking to secular, pagan, Moabites, Canaanites. He's talking to the Israelites here. There's no integrity of life. Number two, there's no steadfast love. That's the word has said. Now, when we talk about God's compassion has said, this is talking about human compassion for one another. There's no love. They're not serving one another in love. They're not showing grace to one another. They're not having compassion on one another. And then 30 says there's no knowledge. The people have no clue who God is objectively and experientially. They don't know about God and they don't know God. And as a result, look at verse two. Sounds like the 10 commandments, right? What's going on in the land? Swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed after bloodshed. What happens as a result of no knowledge of God? Lawlessness. Flagrant rebellion. And then look at verse 6. This is probably one that you've probably heard before. Some translations say, my people perish, or my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge. So what's the big deal here in Israel? They don't know who God is. Let's ask a question. Why don't the people know who God is? It's because the religious leaders have failed to teach the people. So this is an indictment upon If we're going to take a modern application to today, this is an indictment on pastors and Christian leaders all across the land that are not teaching their people who God is. Now, I have a higher accountability as a teacher, as a preacher. My responsibility is to teach you. Now, you need to know who God is, but James 3.1 says, don't assume to be a teacher because you're going to have stricter judgment as a teacher And so my job as your pastor is to teach you to know God so that you will be a person that's faithful 
and you will be a person that's compassionate and you'll be a person that's obedient. So you won't perish for lack of knowledge. Now, the, this is my bias, there's two books besides the Bible that every Christian needs to read. They're both kind of hard to read. Okay, one is The Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon said you won't go to heaven unless you've read Pilgrim's Progress. So I'm, I'm not going to say that. Okay, so Pilgrim's Progress. You can watch the movie. We've got the movie here. But the second greatest book, and it's that thick, and you probably won't sit down and read it all in one setting, is John Calvin's The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And here's how he starts that book. John Calvin says this. He begins the Institutes with these profound words. It is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he's contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. Men are never duly touched and impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. The two greatest things you can do in your life is to know God and know yourself. What do we spend a lot of time doing? Trying to find out ourselves. What's the mantra of our culture? Be true to yourself. Find out who yourself is. Express yourself. It's all about me. You do you. I'll give you a quote from an old movie. Anybody ever seen Foul Play with Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase from 1978? Scott Dudley Moore. Okay, I was looking for it the other day on Netflix. And on, anyway, it's, it's a funny movie. Dudley Moore says this. So this is really off the subject, but it, it's, 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 this is the 70s, but it's the same thing as our culture today. So Goldie Hawn's being chased by these um, killers, and she goes into this bar, like this singles bar, and she's you know, trying to hide, and Dudley Moore's there trying to pick up women, and um, she could care less who he is, but he thinks she's interested in her, and, and he says, you were put on this earth to do your thing, and I was put on this earth to do my thing, and if by chance our things happen to meet, well, that's groovy, <laughs> that's what he said, <laughs> so that's kind of our culture today, <clears throat> you do you, I do me, if we happen to meet, that's cool, it's all about me, it's all about you, you do you, I do me. And we're all about ourselves, and what Calvin says is stop. Look at who God is. And when you spend time thinking about, worshiping, knowing, contemplating who God is, and you come down, you will truly see who you are. And you'll realize how insignificant you are in his majesty. Now Paul, interestingly enough, prayed prayers and in our 30-day prayer journey, we'll eventually get to this later on down the road, um, some of these recorded prayers of Paul. Right now we're in the recorded prayers of the Old Testament. But look at three of Paul's prayers and what he prays for. Okay, So in Ephesians 1, <clears throat> 17 and 18, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, may give you what? the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Keyword knowledge. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches 
of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So what does Paul pray? That the Holy Spirit would give you knowledge. That you would increase in knowledge of who God is. Okay, Philippians 1, 9, and 10. And it is my prayer. Okay, Paul, what's your prayer? That your love may abound more and more. Okay, so that we may love more and more. With what? Knowledge in all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul prays that we grow in knowledge. And then Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Asking, okay, what are you asking, Paul? That you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So do you think it was important for Paul to pray for knowledge of God? Paul's continually praying, I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. I want you to grow in the knowledge of who God is. And as you grow in the knowledge of who God is, you're going to love more, you're going to bear fruit more, you're going to obey more, the more that you know who God is. So, as we launch into this study, worshiping the God who is, studying the attributes of God, let's just ask the question, why? Why do we need to study the attributes of God? And we can say, well, because Paul prayed for us to do it, yes. Because the Bible tells us, yes. I mean, those are all great answers, but let's just dig, dig a little deeper. First, and this is not new to me, this is an R.C. Sproul statement. Everyone is a theologian whether they know it or not. Everyone, even atheists, have an opinion about who God is who they think God is. It's knowledge that's been informed by something. Either scripture, Oprah, YouTube, podcasts, social media. Everybody has some concept of what they think God is. And many Christians think they know who God is. Have you ever heard somebody make a statement like this, my God would never, dot, dot, dot. And then it conflicts with what the scripture is. My son called me today, or he texted me, and he said, Dad, I was listening to a podcast where a guy said that God was a meanie for sending people to hell if they never believed in Jesus. How do, how do I answer someone like that? That's what some people have a concept of God. God must be a meanie. Now, that was not the word that the guy used in the podcast. He used a cuss word to call what God was. Think of a cuss word for meanie. That's what this person called God. So everybody's got a concept of who God is, whether they know it or not. It comes from something. So here's the question. People may think they know who God is, but do we truly know who God is? 1 Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, 
and you are exalted as head above all. Now let's just stop and look at that verse. Do we truly understand the greatness of God? Do we truly understand the power of God? The glory of God? The victory of God? The majesty of God? The kingdom of God? The exalted headship of God? I mean, we, we sing these songs, don't we? And we use Christian verbiage. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. Is. I mean, we sing all these songs about the majesty, the glory of God. And do we really, truly understand what we're singing? Have we truly plumbed the depths of what it means to know the God who is? So number one, everybody is a theologian, whether they know it or not. Everybody has something informing them about who God is. The question is not, are you a theologian? The question is, are you a good theologian? Or are you a bad theologian? Are your thoughts about God rightly informed by the Bible? Or are your thoughts about God wrongly informed by something else? Because everybody has thoughts about God. Okay, second, this is a paradox. If we're honest, the God who is our God is transcendent and incomprehensible. Now, what do I mean by transcendent? He is high and lifted up and so beyond. What does incomprehensible mean? We really can't understand him. Psalm 145.3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. What does unsearchable mean? You really can't figure it out. You can't understand it. His greatness is uh, incomprehensible. Now, you guys know this one. This is a popular one, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God is speaking here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Now, let's just stop and think about that for a moment. Two things that are higher, God's ways. Anybody want to know all the ways of God? I understand all of God's ways. Okay, let's take it deep further. Anybody want to know all the thoughts of God? Have you thought about this? We may do a study on this down the road. All the scriptures that talk about God thinking. You've had some deep thoughts, haven't you? Like maybe when you're driving or in the shower and like you, you come out of it and you're like, ooh, that was a deep thought. Ooh, that was, that was pretty profound. I kind of impressed myself with that thought. That was a good one. Or you hear somebody say something profound, like, ooh, that, guy's, that, was, a great, that was a great quote. Think about God's thoughts. What God thinks. So much higher. Incomprehensible. Transcendent. Higher than we could ever imagine. First Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We can't see him. He's invisible. We can't comprehend him. He's incomprehensible. First Timothy 6, 15 through 16, which he will display at the proper time. 
He who's the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. Now, we may do this next week when we get to the glory of God. We're, we're gonna spend time in Revelation chapter four. Revelation chapter four gives you a picture into the throne room of heaven and how John does his best to describe God in all of his glory. But he dwells in unapproachable light. So everybody's a theologian, whether you know it or not. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Number two, God is incomprehensible. God is so far above us. God is transcendent. Okay, so that, that's a conundrum. If God is so transcendent and God is so high above us, can we ever know who this God is? Well, here's the paradox. Here's the third truth. Thankfully, graciously, God has chosen to reveal himself in Holy Scripture. He's told us what he's like. He's given us everything we need. While God is transcendent and incomprehensible, he has graciously chosen to condescend to our sinful limitations by telling us who he is in the Bible. Theologians of old use this terminology. And they said, when God reveals himself in scripture, it's like baby talk. What do you do when you talk to a baby? I'm not gonna do it because my voice may sound, well, what do you do? You know, you do like, you don't really, you don't really get used, like you don't go up to a baby and say, little baby, do you believe in anti-disestablishmentarianism? I mean, you don't, you don't say words like that to a baby. You, you use baby talk. Okay. Why do you use baby talk to a baby? They, that's all I can understand. We're babies. And God's given us a scripture, and that's all we can understand. So God has condescended to give us, in his word, who he is. So that there's no mistaking we can't fully understand God. We won't fully understand God. He's incomprehensible, yet he's chosen to reveal himself to us. Now, how has God chosen to do this? There's two ways he's done this. So let's turn to Psalm 19. And again, I, I really apologize for my voice. I'm, I, I didn't speak all day. I told my staff, you're going to have to use sign language or text with me today because I'm trying to save my voice. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. Is everybody there? Are you guys warm or is it all right? I'm always warm, so air conditioning's on. But All right, Psalm 19. Um, I've got one more in here. I'm going to save it until I absolutely need it. Uh, psalm 19, the heavens... Declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor other words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. All right, verse one. 
What's David saying? You can look up at the night sky. Anybody ever use Google Sky? Dawn loves that. She loves astronomy and all the different planets and constellations. And You look up at the night sky. What, what, is, what is David saying? That alone declares the glory of God. You look at a sunset on a beach. You go to the Grand Canyon. You go to the mountains. Creation declares the glory of God. You can't help but see that there's a creator. So what exactly is the glory of God? We'll talk about this next week, but I'll give you a preview. The word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. It means weightiness, heaviness, splendor. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that's my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then David talks about the sun. The sun, why does he focus on the sun? What's this? The sun is the brightest of the, of, the, of the stars, right? And the sun, you know, the, the earth revolves around the sun. He's basically saying the sun, the brightest thing that you can see when you look up in the sky, first and foremost points to the glory of God and pours forth speech telling about God's glory. So creation, the sun, the sky, the heavens, everything that God's created has given evidence that there's a God. Now, is there such a thing as an atheist? What's an atheist? person who doesn't believe in God. God doesn't believe in atheists. Okay, no, there is no such thing as an atheist. People may claim to be atheists, but in reality, and we're going to look at a passage of scripture here in just a moment, they suppress what they know to be true deep down in their hearts. Okay, where do I get that? Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 18 through 21, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, let's just stop right there. Suppress. What does it mean to suppress? To push down, to get out of sight. What are people suppressing? The truth. They're pushing it down. They're pushing it away. They don't want to accept the truth. Okay. When you go to the pool and you have those big beach balls, what happens when you try to push it down? It pops right back up. Okay. What Paul's going to say is this. When you push down truth, when you push down God, what's going to pop up? Idolatry. You're not going to worship God. You're going to worship an idol. Let's keep moving. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Psalm 19. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they're without excuse 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God to give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. God has made plain his glory and his power in creation. It's as plain as day. What's the problem? People suppress that truth. They don't want to face up to that truth. But they know deep down in their hearts there's something out there. And they're accountable. Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This, you may write this in your notes because I don't think I, I have it. This is called general revelation. Creation. General revelation means the creation gives information about who God. You can know who God is in a limited way by creation. But it's not enough. By looking up at the stars, do you know who the person of Jesus is? Do you know the definition of sin? Do you know the Trinity? Do you know the substitutionary atonement? Do you know the virgin birth? Do you know the role of the Holy Spirit? Do you know what it means to be justified? Do you know about heaven? No. Those are things you don't know by creation. What does creation, what does creation show you? The invisible glory and power of God, and that's about all. It's great, and God has given that as a starting point, but it's not enough. So let's look at the rest of the psalm. David pivots into what we call special revelation or the written word of God, written revelation. So notice how he shifts in verse 7. He moves from creation, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is pure, is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are of gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the word of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In verses 7 through 11, David shifts gears and shows us the glory of God in Scripture as his written word dominates our lives. All of those are synonyms for the same thing, God's written word, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the rules. It's all the written word of God. So there is general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can know God limited by looking at creation, but you need the written word. You need God's scripture. So God has chosen to reveal himself to us in his scripture. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. General revelation is not enough to know God. We need the special revelation of written scripture. So God is transcendent. God is incomprehensible. God cannot be fully known but he's chosen to reveal himself in scripture. Now, I do not have a scripture next. It just popped into my mind. This happens from time to time. So write this down and we'll turn to it. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It illustrates this perfectly. Deuteronomy 29, 29. And this is a great scripture to plead if you don't know an answer. Let me see if I have it memorized. I'm not going to turn to it. Tell me if I get it right. Is everybody there? All right. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things he has revealed have been shown to his children that we may obey them. Is that close? Sort of. Let me make sure I quote it accurately. I was close, I think. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are real belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Okay, there's two parts to this verse. Part one, the secret things belong to the Lord. What are the secret things? Things God says, I'm not going to let you know what those are. Those belong to me. Is God under any obligation to reveal to us his secret will, his secret things? No. Those belong to him. There are some things to God that he will not reveal to us. He's under no obligation to reveal to us. They're a mystery. He keeps those to himself. What's the second part of the verse? But the things that are revealed, what are the things that are revealed? What's he revealed? His scripture. The things he's given us in scripture belong to who? They belong to us and our children. Why? That we may do all the words of this law. So it's the written word. So there are incomprehensible secret things of God. He's so majestic. He's so much higher. He's lofty. And yet he's chosen to reveal himself to us that we may know him in his word. Okay, so number one, why, why study the attributes of God? Everyone's a theologian, whether you know it or not. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? Number two, God is transcendent. He's high, he's lifted up, he, he's mysterious. But yet, number three, he's chosen to reveal himself to us in scripture. Okay, here's the fourth. Our sin prevents us from knowing and worshiping God in the way he's told us to. Is the problem with God's scripture or is the problem with us? There's nothing wrong with God's scripture. The scriptures are absolutely clear in defining who God is. What's the problem? Either we don't want to know or when we do know, we don't want to obey or we're clouded in our thinking. Here's another John Calvin quote, his most famous quote probably. The human mind 
is a perpetual factory of idols. Daily experience shows that the sinful mind is always restless until it finds something that looks like itself in which it finds vain comfort as a representation of God. As a result of this blind passion, men have in almost all ages since the world began set up imaginary idols before their eyes to take the place of God. What's our natural heart's intention? Not to want to worship God, not to want to know God, to, to set up something that looks like us, to set up an idol. So God is very clear who he is. The problem is we don't want to know who God is. Or we want to know parts of who God is. And the other parts of God that make us uncomfortable, we don't want to know. Hopefully this doesn't happen, but this is, this is a description of non-believers in Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. I mean 17 through 20. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul's saying don't live the way that you used to live when you were a non-Christian in the futility of your minds. They, unsaved people, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's not the way you learn Christ. Now, unbelievers have become darkened and calloused and stubborn. Let me ask you a question. Not that we can go full-blown that way, but as Christians, can we sometimes get darkened in our understanding? Can we become idolaters in our thinking? Can we give in to sin? Okay. So it's important to study the knowledge and the attributes of God because our sin is always going to point us in the direction opposite of who God is. Our sin's going to always point us in the direction of ourselves. Okay, here's the thing. If I were to want to draw a huge crowd, here's how I would do it. Next week, we are going to have a self-help seminar where it's going to be all about you, how you can become a better person, and I will give you tips on how to be a better you. A lot of people will show up for that, won't they? Because the flesh craves me. And if you do ministry appealing to the flesh, you're going to have a lot of people show up. Or I could say, next week we're going to study the attributes of God. And thankfully you're here to study it. But that's not as exciting, is it? Because we're talking about God and not you. Now, it will always apply, apply to you, and you'll live it out, and you'll obey, and it'll have application, but we always start with God, who God is. So our sin prevents us from truly knowing who God is. Sometimes we don't want to know. Sometimes when we find out, we don't want to obey. We don't want to go deeper. All right, number five. Make it your boast to know and understand the Lord. Now, why do I say make it your boast? I thought boasting wasn't good. Are we supposed to boast and brag? Trick question. 
Are we supposed to boast and brag about ourselves? Not depending on the... Okay, I'm not saying that if your kid does good on the soccer field, you're not supposed to say, man, you did a terrible job. You can do better next time. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying you can boast upon your kids. The point is, well, let me just read Jeremiah because this is where the language comes from. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. Thus says the Lord. This is God speaking. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. And let not the rich man boast in his riches. Okay, let's stop right there. Three things that our world values, right? What's the three things our world values? Wisdom, intelligentsia, academia, okay. might, power, prestige, popularity, and riches. And where are most people boasting in? Those things. And most people want those three things. And God says, don't boast in those. Instead, look at verse 24. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If you're going to boast in something, if you're going to get excited about something, if you're going to really make it a passion, what does God himself say? That you know and understand him. That you know and understand him. Now, I'm going to make a distinction here. Because we need to be very careful as we go through this. That this does not become an academic exercise in checking off the boxes that we did the attributes of God. We want to know about God, but we also want to know God. Let me ask you, is there a difference between knowing about God and knowing God? Do we need both? We need to know about who God is, but you can go through a study on who God is and make it very academic, make it very... Um, esoteric, fill your mind with a lot of biblical data, and you can walk out of this not being any closer to God. You know about God, but you don't know God. I would recommend a book to read over the next few weeks if you've never read it before. It's one of the great classics of the modern age, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Pretty easy read goes through the attributes of God on more of a popular level. Um, it's one of the top-selling books of the past 50 years. Um, it, it's a good book. But J.I. Packer says this, Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. Good quote. We want to get acquainted with the attributes of God, but we also want to get acquainted with the living God. So the study of the attributes of God is a means to an end, to know God more deeply, to worship God more deeply. Not just to have knowledge about God so that you can pass a theology quiz, but so that you know God experientially, 
Okay, sixth. God has chosen to reveal himself most fully in the person and work of Christ. We'll get to the Trinity eventually. Which person of the Trinity has a physical body that came to earth, that lived a human life, died and rose again? Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the Father. In the opening prologue to the Gospel of John, John 1, 14 through 18. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek here because it's kind of an interesting word. The Word became flesh. Now, remember the Word there? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. That's, that's Jesus. This is John's way of using the word, logos, Word. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we've received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Okay, this is a key verse right here. No one has ever seen God, the Father, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's a lot of deep theology in that one verse. I'm not going to go into that. But Jesus has made the Father known. Made God known. It's where we get our word exegesis. He exegeted God. It's a rare Greek word that means to communicate fully or tell the whole story or give all the details. So if you want to know the full story of who God is, look at Jesus. Jesus in the flesh communicates the fullness of God in bodily form. What did Jesus say is eternal life? How do we start this whole discussion tonight? John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know me, they know you, Father, and me, and that you sent me. How does Jesus end the book of John? These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you want to experience the fullness, the glory, the grace, the beauty, the majesty of God, it comes only through Jesus Christ. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Father? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word radiance, he's the radiance, that word shows up nowhere else in the New Testament. Now, let me ask you a question. When you're going down a street and you see a bicycle that has a little thing on the back of it that's usually orange, what's that called? A reflector. What's a reflector? Does a reflector give off light? It reflects your headlights, right? Okay. If you go out on the building at night after we're done here, on the side of the building, what do we have? We have two huge floodlights. They shine forth, right? Does a floodlight reflect or does it radiate? Okay. The word here is not Jesus reflects God's glory, but Jesus radiates God's glory. If, he, if Jesus merely reflected God's glory, that would mean there's something like less in Jesus that means that he's reflecting off of God. No, literally, Jesus is the radiating forth of the glory of God. So the writer of Hebrews uses a very unique Greek word there to make sure that Jesus is not just a reflection of God's glory, but he's the radiating fullness of God's glory. And, and here's what I want you to think about. Attributes of God come most closely into focus on the cross. Where do you see love and justice meet? Where do you see God's love and God's justice? He loved us so much he poured out his justice on Jesus. Those two attributes are right there. Where do you see mercy and wrath meet? At the cross. Where do you see compassion and holiness meet? Okay. Now, for tonight, the remainder of our time, I want us to begin with not necessarily an attribute of God. It is an attribute of God, but it's a name of God. It's the L-O-R-D Yahweh. L-O-R-D all caps in your Old Testament very closely related to the I am. Okay, the Lord, the I am. Trivia question. When does the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, when, when's the very first verse it shows up? It's not Exodus, it's Genesis. The first three times the word Lord shows up in the Bible it's always in reference to prayer. Genesis 4.26 is the first time it shows up. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Yahweh. They began to pray, to call upon the name of the Lord. Hey, what happens when Abraham is called 
to go leave. And he gets to the place that God's going to show him in Genesis 12:8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built the altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham calls upon the name of the Lord. His son Isaac does the same thing. Genesis 26, 25, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Okay, so the word Lord. Now there's, a, there's L-O-R-D, capital L, lowercase O-R-D. That's a different Hebrew word, but L-O-R-D, all caps. And if you open your Bible, hopefully it's in all caps. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and don't spit on them. If you have a neighbor, just say it out loud. Say Yahweh. No, say it Yahweh. Yahweh. When you say Yahweh, what comes out? It's kind of like a, a breath, okay? Just the way you say it. Now, when Moses is at the burning bush, this is the first time God uses the I am. But I want to show you, well, I'll just tell you now. The Hebrew for I am sounds very close to Yahweh. So, Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, remember, they've been in 400 years of captivity. Moses has fled. He sees God at the burning bush. God says, go back because I've heard the cries of my people. And Moses asks a good question. If I'm going to travel all the way back to the Israelites and I show up and say, hey, God sent me, they're going to ask, well, what's his name? And God says, okay, I'm going to give you my name. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he says, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. What's his name forever? I am who I am, or the Lord, the God? Yes, and yes. So in verse 13, Moses asked the question, what should I tell people is your name? But here's a question. Did the Israelites not know who God was? How long have they been living in pagan idolatry in Egypt? 400 years. How many false gods are there in Egypt? A lot. So do you think it would be hard to imagine that over 400 years in Israelite, I mean, in Egyptian captivity, the Israelites possibly could have adopted pagan gods and forgotten the Lord their God or had a casual understanding of who God was. 
that name, the Lord, had been lost. Why do you think God says in verse 15, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? Over time, over this 400 years, the Israelites had lost the reverence and understanding of God as the Lord. The covenant and personal name of God. Now, the name for God, in the beginning God, that's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's just the generic word God. The covenant name that God has revealed to the Israelites is Lord. L-O-R-D. And so when God says, I am who I am, in a way, he's basically saying, I am the Lord. Now, the Hebrew here gets very interesting. Hebrew is a lot harder to understand than Greek. I like Greek a lot easier than Hebrew because sometimes in Hebrew, you don't know the tense of the verb. It could be present, it could be past, it could be future. A lot of times it depends on the context. In Greek, it's very precise. You know exactly what the tense is. Um, so when I was in seminary, I struggled with Hebrew um, because it's a little bit more fluid. And so when God says, I am who I am, there's really no way to do justice to how this phrase is translated in the Hebrew language. But like I said earlier, the word I am sounds very similar to Yahweh. I am Yahweh, the Lord. So there are three legitimate ways, and I think this is the beauty of how God says it. There are three legitimate ways to translate this phrase, I think. And all of them tell us something a little bit different about who God is. So first, you could translate it as, I have always been who I have always been. Kind of like a past tense. I've always been who I've always been. That would express God's eternal nature. God's the eternal God. He has no beginning. He's always been in existence. He's, he's always been the I am. I've always been the I am. And I will always continue to be the I am. I've always been who I've always been. Secondly, you could translate it, I am who I am. Meaning that God alone defines who he is. And nothing compares to him. I've said this before many times. You can make an I am statement. I am tall. I am blonde. I am Don's husband. I am the pastor of Emmanuel. But can I stand up and say, I am. Period. I think, therefore, I am. Can anybody say definitively, I am, without anything attached to it? I am a product of my parents. They brought me into existence. My identity can never be separated from my parents who birthed me. My existence is limited by who I am. I am six foot two. I have always wanted to be six foot six or six foot seven so I could dunk. I dunked once in high school, and that was by luck. I jumped up to do a layup, and I was above the rim, and I dunked it. And I'm like, whoa, wow, I did that. Never happened again. But I wanted to dunk like Michael Jordan. Can't do that. I want to fly like Superman. 
can't do that. I have limitations. When God says, I am who I am, he's basically saying, there are no limits to who I am. I define reality. There's no one in comparison to me. I am ultimate reality. I am who I am, and nothing compares to me. So you could say God says, I've always been who I've always been, the eternal God. I am who I am. I define reality. And then you could translate it a third way. I will be who I will be. It stresses the fact that God will act in the future, and he will continue to exist from everlasting to everlasting. Really, when you boil it down, this Hebrew term means God causes, creates, and sustains all things. He's the source of all things. He's the center of all things. He's ultimate reality. Job 42.8. I mean, Isaiah 42.8. We said this earlier. I am the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Job 41.11. Who's given first to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The term I am describes one of the critical attributes of God. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the self-existent God who has no needs. You ever heard anybody say, I think God needs dot, dot, dot. Does God have any needs? Does God need us? No, he's perfectly happy and fulfilled as God without us. Now, he chooses to enter into a relationship with us, which is wonderful, but he has no needs. Now, worshiping the God who is the I am. I don't want us just to merely know about God. I want us to worship God. So Paul does this. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, we talked about this in staff meeting, about how Paul starts this. How does Paul start it? Oh, I woke you up, didn't I? Oh. Now why does Paul start with oh? It's an expression of wonder, of joy, of excitement. It's as if Paul has been writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 1 through 11. He's talked about justification by faith alone, the role of the Holy Spirit, our spiritual adoption, God's glory, all of these things. And finally he gets to this point and he just kind of puts his pen down and says, oh, wow. I've got to worship this God I've been writing about. He could have just started and said the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. But he says, oh. 
And then he gives three qualities of God there. The depth of the riches. God's riches and showing amazing grace to rebellious sinners in the context of what he's been talking about in Romans. The riches of his grace. His wisdom. His sovereign plan of salvation. His knowledge. The fact that God has exhaustive knowledge of all things, past, present, future, and he foreknew us before the foundation of the world. Here's the point. Is God sovereign? Yes. Is God unfathomable? Yes. Is God unsearchable? Yes. So let's stop and ask a question. Why in the world would this God ever save me? When you stop and think about that, you're like, whoa. Oh. I came across this passage when I was studying Job about 10 years ago. And Job's talking about the heavens. He's talking about what he can see out there in the heavens. And I like what he says in Job 26, 14. Behold, these, talking about the heavens, the sky, the solar system, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Who can understand the power of God? Basically, Job's saying, when you look up at the night sky, that's just a small inkling of the power of God. The knowledge, the wisdom. And then Paul has these rhetorical questions that he asks that obviously are, are meant to be answered with nobody. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Anybody know God's mind? Isaiah 40, 13. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Who's known the mind of the Lord? Second question. Who's given God advice or counsel? Everybody tries to give God advice. Here's how I think you should run the universe, God. You want my unsolicited opinion? I'll give it to you, God. Anybody want to stand up to God? Here's how I think you should run the universe. Here's how I think you should do things. I know better. Who's ever done that? And then who can, who can, who's ever repaid God or given him a gift? That's the height of arrogance, to repay God for his free gift of grace. It's a free gift. You can't repay it. What are you going to give God that he doesn't already have? Job 41.11. Who's first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven's mind. And then how does that little statement end? For through him and to him and from him are all things forever and ever. Amen. Exodus 15, 11. Who's like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who's like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And what's the answer to that question? Who's like you? What's the answer? No one. Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you're the same, 
Your years have no end. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Ephesians 1, 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. So here's the bottom line for tonight. When we contemplate all that God is and all that God has done for us, the only appropriate response is to fall on our knees in joyful humility and worship him alone. Our response is like Paul. We say, oh. There's different ways to say, oh. You can say, oh. You can say, oh. You can say, oh. There's a lot of different ways to say, oh. Because God is beautiful in all his ways. So, we're going to end there tonight. Um, I, I had a thought. I was going to run this by you tonight instead of springing it upon you. So, you can override this or veto this. Okay. So, I stand up here in lecture for an hour and a half. I could lecture for an hour to an hour and 10 minutes and then leave the final 20 to 25 minutes for you guys to break up in small groups and to debrief what we talked about in your group with maybe like a discussion sheet of three or four questions. And if you don't want to stay for that, you can leave. Or you can go sit and wait for your kids. I don't know. I mean, some of you introverts are like, that's the worst thing you can do to me. Some of you extroverts are like, yes. So... um, Let's do an initial, I don't know how to do this. Who wants to hear Sean lecture for an hour and a half? Raise your hands. Okay, who wants to break up into smaller groups and discuss? It's about half and half. Who doesn't care? Okay, raise your, right. who doesn't care? Raise your hands really high if you don't care. Okay. Who absolutely does not want to break up into small groups and finds it threatening and scary? Okay, if, as long as you're with your husband, you don't have, all right, let me just say it this way. In your small groups, you don't have to say a word. Okay? You don't have to say a word. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read your Bible. You can just sit there and listen. Is that fair? All right. We may experiment with that, with that next week. In the, in the time we have left, it sounds like it's raining really hard out there. Any um, questions or comments or snide remarks? Yes. Okay. This is excellent. What, you know, we've talked about this before. You know, the fact that God has revealed himself to us in his word, don't we need to be careful about what translations <laughs> we use to study? Because there's starting to be some really odd ones out there. Odd translations. Okay, so Andrea's question is, if God has revealed himself to us in his word, we need to be careful what 
word. Were, and so, for example, there's like, there's the passion translation. There's the message. Let me just give you a little bit of a background. There are three types of Bibles out there. Okay? The first type of Bible is what we call a, I'm just going to use the, I'm going to use a layperson's word, literal word for word. Okay? Literal word for word, there's a translation committee of scholars in the field who work together as a committee. And so your word for word translations are obviously the ESV, what we use, the New American Standard Bible, the King James Bible, the New King James Bible, and the Christian Standard Bible. Those are the modern translations that are the word for word closest to the original language. Okay? And they're done by committee. So that's not just one person's opinion. There's scholars from different denominational backgrounds. There's peer review. They come together and they, they basically say this is the best English translation we can come up with from the original languages to publish. ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, Christian Standard Bible. Okay. The second type is what we call a thought for thought. This is where they take the, um, not necessarily word for word, but the, the, the general flow of thought to make it a little bit smoother English translation. Okay. So this would be, the biggest one here is the NIV and the New Living Translation. The, NI, the NIV is still done by committee. There's still different denominational backgrounds. But let me give you an example. So in Romans 3, 21 through 24, the ESV and all the um, literal translations say Jesus was put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Okay. The ESV says he was put forth as an atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement. And there's a footnote down there that says the real word's propitiation. So the NIV takes out the big word propitiation and makes it a little bit easier word, atoning sacrifice. So they've kind of taken an older word, propitiation, that we don't use in modern day and, and, and given more of a modern feel to it, okay? Now, those are both what we'd call translations, translation committee, peer review, multiple denominations, reputable, okay? The third is what we would call a paraphrase. Paraphrase is usually one person's interpretation. The message by Eugene Peterson the Living Bible, the Passion Translation. It's usually not done by scholars in the field of language. It's usually not done by committee with people from different backgrounds coming together to peer review. It's usually one person's take on their understanding of the Scripture to make it more easily understood and I think paraphrases, I'll just give my personal opinion. I, I wouldn't use them. Um, because you're not getting as close to the original language as you should, and you're, you're being biased by a person's interpretation. Now, if you want to consult it and just kind of look at it, that's fine, but I would not use that for your main study, your main intake. Does that answer... Your question. 
a scholar, and he's not. Yeah, some people claim to be. Right. Right. Yeah, lots of fluffy words to the Passion Translation. Deb, did you have a question? Yeah, the Holman's now called the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB, yeah, they took the Holman out of it. But yeah, that's a, that's a literal word for word. I don't know about the Apologetics Bible. I don't know, I'm not familiar with that one. Unless it's a New American Standard one or something. Any other questions? Yes, Brent. You got to give me the address here. Genesis 28, what? I got to look at Yeah. Yeah. L O R D, the Lord stood. Not sure I'm, not, I'm not sure I understand what you're asking. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and the Lord. Right, it's just, yeah, it's the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because from Jacob came the 12 tribes, and it just stops saying, you know, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes. I mean, yeah. Are you guys ready to pray? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are truly incomprehensible. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around how glorious you are, how wonderful you are. You are the great I am, the Lord, the creator and sustainer of all things. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways are higher than our ways. But Lord, you've chosen to reveal yourself to us in your written word. And for that, I'm so thankful. There's no mistaking who you are and who you want us to know that you are. And you've revealed that to us from Genesis to Revelation, especially in Jesus. So Jesus, thank you for being God in the flesh, dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. Thank you for being the fullness of God in bodily form, being the radiance of the glory of God. Holy Spirit, thank you that you were sent by Jesus to live in us, to empower us, to help us understand these truths without your power in our lives, Holy Spirit, we would not even begin to understand these things or live these things out. So Holy Spirit, you give us that power. So Father, Son, and Spirit, we do thank you for being the one true God. 
We love you. We honor you. We praise you. Let this be more than just knowing about you. Let this lead to worshiping you and knowing you. And Lord, may we wake up every day with the attitude of Paul and just say, oh, oh, I, I can't believe this is the God I worship. Oh, I can't believe this is the God who saved me. Would we never get casual with you, God, but we would always have that wonder, that joy, that awe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.